Hi, and thanks for downloading that B-Word podcast. This is your beautiful bipolar host, Becky. And I'll tell you what, guys, I really appreciate you coming back and spending some time with me today. Um, I'm not... I'm not feeling that great, so I'm going to skip any introductory nonsense and just go straight on into the news. Well, the news story that I found for this week is actually a study uh, that is published in the International Journal of Bipolar Disorders uh, in in memory, I suppose, <laughs> of World Bipolar Day, which is yesterday. I, I decided to make this this news story all about bipolar disorder. Now, this article is called Antidepressants and Bipolar Depression and Enduring Controversy. And as any controversy would have, um, I'm sure that most of you have heard the opposite of what this article is going to suggest. Um, Now, that is that the use of antidepressants is not anathema to the treatment of bipolar disorder. But bear with me, Um, I think they make some interesting points. First off, the article points out that in studies, most patients that are taking both mood stabilizers and antidepressants did not quote-unquote switch into mania or hypomania. Now that's what I'm on, and I'd like to vouch for that. (laughs) Um, since I'm on actually one of the medicines that they suggest in this particular um, article, Cariprazine or Vralar, has shown efficacy in at least one double-blind study. In fact, um, the evidence of increased cycling was actually with older tricyclic-style antidepressants and not with SSRIs or SNRIs, which are... Um, I think what most people now are prescribed. Now, the article does go into what more likely to make a person with bipolar disorder susceptible to switching with when treated with antidepressants. And they are if they are diagnosed type 1 instead of type 2. Uh, if they have a history of mixed features and a history of stimulant abuse. Um, also what kind of antidepressant is used, whether it's an SSRI or one of the older tricyclics. So it's interesting that they make that distinction between um, one and two. Uh, The article goes on to say that it's difficult to say that antidepressants occur or or cause, are the cause of the switching because switching occurs naturally in bipolar disorder, right? So essentially, they're saying that since um, switching between depression and mania or mania and depression are something that we already do, that you're not able to say for certain that it was the antidepressant that caused it to switch when that happens, right? So the article goes on to say that there are two concerns, the switching, which we've been talking about, and exacerbating the illness. It um, has also been called exacerbating the course of the illness, rapid, the induction of rapid cycling, roughening the course of the disorder, cycle acceleration, not psychic acceleration, that's different, um, increased effective lability, which is basically just the changes in mood, and so forth. 
the article goes on to talk about bipolar 2 specifically, and it seems to indicate that, now this is really controversial, that the bipolar 2 can sometimes be treated with antidepressant monotherapy, which is antidepressants without a mood stabilizer, right? So now that is something that I had not heard before at all. And it does say that that's a short-term solution, but still not something that I had ever heard before. So again, the question becomes not, is antidepressant therapy harmful to bipolar patients, but which patients might benefit from antidepressant therapy? Um, and it goes on to say that the set of patients that are the best helped by the mood stabilizer antidepressant combo are those on whom the antidepressant number one works and who have one or more attempts to discontinue the antidepressants resulting in a depressive relapse. Hands up. Anybody? Yeah, me too. Okay, well, that is our news segment for today. Um, my interview today is with Sarah, and I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did. You know, growing up as a small child, a lot of these um, issues that I deal with now have been dealing with, you know, since I was really small, and, um, you know, they're based out of trauma. <clears throat> when I was, you know, much younger, I didn't really have any idea that anything, I guess, was wrong or different or um, how I should be processing, you know, what was going on or what are these thoughts and these feelings that I'm experiencing, <clears throat> putting words to those um, was really difficult for me. And so I just ended up being just like a really awkward kind of kid and um, just totally oblivious to it and, and was all right with that and, you know, grew up with, you know, friends that were kind of the same way. And it was kind of just like us against the world. Um, and, you know, there was something powerful, I think, about that, mm-hmm. you know, having that relatability, um, but without actually recognizing, I guess, what it was that was bringing us together. Um, and, you know, it wasn't until I think it was 15 or 16, the first time. I actually had attempted um, suicide, and uh, I was hospitalized. I was institutionalized um, for two weeks, um, and it was really only then that I kind of saw, you know, this is not okay. <laughs> you know, what I'm experiencing is not okay. What I had been experiencing was not okay, and that was okay <laughs> in a sense that, in, you know, like in a sense that um, I think just acknowledging it, um, I think was really powerful. Um, but it was still hard even at that age, um, you know, to, to kind of acknowledge all of that. I think that was kind of like the beginning. Right. And, you know, I walked away with, you know, like all these different medications and, um, you know, I, you know, started seeing like a therapist, I think I saw for like six months. Um, my parents didn't really believe, you know, at the time that like psychology was like a thing that, you know, it was all just a bunch of, you know, like foo-foo and, you know, like just, you know, work it out or, you know, don't cry about it or, you know, just be strong. <laughs> and, um, uh, 
you know, so my perception of, you know, strength was keeping it all in, um, you know, not crying about it. Um, and what happened, you know, as I grew older and into my, you know, early twenties, you know, I would hold so much stuff in until I couldn't hold it in anymore. And I would absolutely burst. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I grew up, um, uh, you know, in my, you know, in my early twenties, uh, I had a lot of hard time, uh, you know, interacting with other people, finding work, working consistently, because, you know, even though I was holding all of this stuff in, and even though I wasn't at, you know, constantly in crisis internally, um, you know, I was just having such a hard time, um, in like every day, day to day, I couldn't go grocery shopping cause I, I'd, I'd leave the house and just, I would be so overwhelmed and shaking and, you know, just, you know, just crazy anxiety. Um, just, you know, racked and riddled my body. And, uh, I was, uh, married, um, and, you know, with my, my high school sweetheart and, you know, outside of him, he was really the only person that I talked to. Um, you know, all my friends that, you know, I had grown up with, um, uh, you know, in high school and before that, that we had kind of, you know, clung to each other and it was us against the world, you know, the paths that, that they saw it, um, were very self-destructive. They got in, you know, heavy into drugs and, and I didn't want to do that. And so, you know, my response to that was, okay, I'm going to pick up everything that I have and I'm going to move to the other side of the country. And that's what I did. I packed up everything that I had, put it in my PT cruiser, didn't have, you know, a job or anything like that. Or like my husband and I were like, we're just going to go. And so we did that. And, um, you know, just kind of, I guess, you know, my way of was just resetting, um, cutting off like all ties and, you know, realizing that there was something wrong and it needed to be fixed and it wasn't going to be fixed where I was doing what I was doing. And so I get to Oregon and I'm still having, you know, this anxiety, but now I don't have, you know, like any friends, I don't have, um, any sort of, you know, outlet, um, you know, I spoke to my husband and I, and now my ex-husband, uh, you know, and my mom, and, and that was essentially it. Um, but I've always been really um, artistically inclined, I guess. Um, always had that kind of compulsion to create, use my hands. Um, and, uh, you know, I took to the Internet, <laughs> I think, like, you know, a lot of lonely people do. You know, like Google, like, how do I make friends? You know, and Google was like, <laughs> Google was like, find people with similar interests as you. And I was like, okay, artists, like, and, and so, like, you know, the way my brain processed was like, okay, I need to find more like art people. How do I do that? And I decided to, um, uh, I, I started looking at like Craigslist and looking for artists. And um, I found, uh, I think like one of my first I think like my only friend, my first and like really only friend the first couple of years I was in Oregon and her name is Neben and we came together and we did like photo shoots. Like she would, you know, like pose for me and I would take her picture and she would let me like paint on her body. And like, you know, I would then like draw these and, um, through her, like there was just so much inspiration. And through that connection, I met, you know, other people who, also like to pose and model and stuff and just slowly my network started growing and and I was like listen even like I want to do something you know because I, I went to school briefly for graphic design and she was going to school for graphic design I'm like let's do something like like the art scene is shit 
And like, you know, everyone wants money, you know, to, to show our artwork and, you know, like nobody, you know, we don't really want to show our work in like coffee shops and I want to meet more people who are like having the same sort of struggles that we are. And so naturally we started a magazine and it really took off. Um, and that really surprised us, but you know, it was really empowering, um, you know, and, and and even though like I struggled, you know, like I, I still suffered from, you know, like the anxiety, like, like, whoa, like crazy. Um, but I like forced myself to, and it was like, it was like scary because I would go and, and interview some artists and I literally be like shaking in my boots, like, um, um, like tell me about like all the things that like you do and like, <laughs> you know, and, and like, cause I really like your art and, and, and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, so it was really difficult, but I got a lot of, um, sense of achievement out of it. And I got, you know, I got to talk to people and it got me out of my head. So even if it was like for a little bit, you know, after a while, you know, Neben moved um, to Santa Fe and she's doing amazing things down there. And I, you know, worked on the magazine for a little bit and I think I got to like the sixth or seventh issue. And I was like, you know what? I can't do it. <laughs> like at this point in time. Um, I need to focus on my mental health more. Um, and cause I was just putting too much stress. I mean, I was designing the magazine. I was putting out cast. It was a quarterly magazine. Um, and I designed the whole thing. Um, and I, you know, reached out to all the artists and I, you know, the casting calls and I did interviews and I, you know, would help artists, you know, photograph their artworks that we'd have like high resolution, high quality images for the zines. And, and then, and then I wasn't getting paid for it because I didn't want money for it. I just wanted to do it. Like the sense of accomplishment and community that I got from it was enough. And, and we had like uh, two launch parties and that was really cool. Um, and so I didn't want to bring like advertisers on. It probably would have made things easier for me, like having money to kind of like support myself. And, um, but <laughs> it was just, it was just too weird for me. And, and, and the, the, uh, I don't know. I felt it would kind of diminish it. And mm -hmm. so I was kind of scared to do that. Mm -hmm. And then also, I, you know, and I, and I wanted it to be free. And so, you know, it was online and it was free and people could download it. If they wanted to order something, they could. Um, but like, you know, it was all totally at cost on, on print clouds so or um, mag cloud. And so it wouldn't, you know, they could just buy it at cost, whatever, <laughs> totally circumvent myself from it. And that was cool. Um, but when it became too much and, and kind of too heavy on me, I needed to kind of step back. And I was like, okay, working is really hard, but I need to give it a go because I'm broke as fuck. And I need to like eat and I need to take some of the stress off my husband. And I need to, um, <clears throat> but at the same time, do something that inspires me because that's always been really important. And I think that, you know, people who do struggle with mental health issues, um, really need something that inspires them. Mm -hmm. Um, and one thing that inspired me was, you know, helping other people. It's always been, um, kind of just what I gravitated toward. Uh, and so I worked for this company called partnerships and community living, and we helped, um, adults who lived with developmental disabilities, um, kind of live their you know, day to day life, just living the best life that they, they wanted to, um, and just kind of helping them do that. And so I did that for a couple of years and, you know, 
once I had that job and, and I hit the six month mark, they're like, Oh, like you are now worthy of healthcare. <laughs> and so for the first time in my life, I had insurance and I was just so excited. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like everything's going to be perfect now. Like I just, I don't know, I had this notion that I was going to get health insurance, I was gonna get a therapist and I was going to, you know, just get a magic pill and, and it was, everything was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, up in, up until this point, the only time that I saw a therapist was when I had those explosive bursts and I would be in crisis. And, um, the problem with, you know, relying on crisis care, um, which so many people do, by the way, um, you know, in this country, um, you know, waiting until you explode, um, you're not getting long-term preventative care. And so, you know, when you're in a state of crisis, you know, you walk in, they print you off a piece of paper. It's like, oh, you're here today for depression. Like, here's the WebMD printout. And like, you know, we'll see you next time you have a mental breakdown. And like, good luck to you. Um, don't have insurance. Sorry. Like, we don't care because we can't care because bureaucracy and, and all that fun stuff. So, so I finally get insurance and I'm like, they can finally see me like long term. I don't have to wait until I explode anymore. Um, this is amazing. So I, you know, get into my, uh, to meet my PCP and I'm just so like bubbling over with like anxiety and excitement and like nervousness. And he's, you know, taking my, uh, you know, got the stethoscope and I just start crying. <laughs> like, I didn't, don't even know why really. Like there's so much like overwhelming feelings inside me. And um, I just started bawling and he just kind of stepped back and he was like, all right, what's up? <laughs> and I was like, man, let me tell you, <laughs> like so much is up. Um, and he was like, okay, so I hear you've been on, you know, medications in the past. And I know that, you know, they didn't do well for you because, you know, when I was institutionalized the first time when I was very young, they put me on a bunch of stuff and um, uh, really bad effects. Um, and so that whole time I was very resistant, hesitant to try again. So now I have insurance. I'm like 25 years old. And he's like, let's try again. You're an adult now. And you kind of have a better sense of kind of what's going on. And I want you to try Lexapro. It's good for depression. It's good for anxiety. Maybe in like two to three weeks, you'll feel a thing. Man, like two to three days, I felt like all the things. <laughs> and it was amazing. Like, I just felt like, I felt like this little just switch just like went off in my brain. And like things, I was seeing them in color. And like I could smell things. And like the sky was shining. It was just a really strong, overwhelming effect. And like I honestly believe, um, you know, even though like, you know, I was married and, and I, you know, had that friend and we were creating that magazine, you know, and I had all these, you know, you know, relatively positive experiences. I don't believe I've ever experienced happiness until I started that medication when I was 25 years old. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, and um, it shook me, um, that realization. And um, uh, I started looking at things differently. I kind of realized, like, you know, where I was was not okay. I was not happy in my marriage. I was not happy with so many things. And, you know, the depression was so deep, so severe. Um, and the trauma was so, um, just ever present pretty much. And, you know, like my day to day that I just shut down. Um, 
and just accepted what was without thinking like I am stronger than this. I can, um, you know, face this without having to like stuff it down deep down inside me. Um, and it was the weirdest thing cause you know, people always say, you know, like, you know, mental health and, and like art and stuff. They go like hand in hand and like, you know, like the depressed people are, you know, they always make like the best art and stuff like that. But, you know, when I was depressed, I hated my art. Um, I didn't feel connected to it. Um, I felt like it was just shit, honestly. And I always wanted to burn it. I'd always fantasize about just burning it, you know, like, especially if people like complimented it. I'd be like, like, this is terrible. You just don't know what you're talking about. And, um, like, I'll show you and I'll just burn it. <laughs> then what? Like, how dare you compliment me? <laughs> like, um, just, I don't know, just weird, weird thoughts like that. And, um, I, uh, you know, eventually, uh, you know, I, I told my husband that I wanted a divorce and, um, you know, since that time, um, well, during that time, I was actually institutionalized uh, again, uh, long-term at, um, a psychiatric facility, uh, up in Happy Valley, Oregon. Um, and it was a lot different than it had been in the past because in the past it was just depression, depression, just miserable. I don't feel like I deserve to exist, you know, like I'm nothing and I'm just this toxic, like monster. I'm just cancer. And like, I shouldn't be here. Um, and that was like, the truth, like in, in my mind, like that's just the fact of the matter. And, you know, now that I was on this medication, I kind of sort of felt like that sometimes, um, but it didn't last as long. It wasn't like ever present. And, um, you know, it was mixed in with more, like I used to be totally mute. Now I'm just like chatty, 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 blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and... <laughs> And so it kind of started revealing some, you know, like manic-y kind of symptoms. Um, and so, you know, I I was institutionalized because I wanted to kill myself, but I didn't want to kill myself. And I decided that I was going to ask for help because the medication had shown me this tunnel, uh, of, you know, like, uh, or this, you know, this like a like a path you know like just a way out it felt like 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 you know like there's a chance to like crawl out of this and like I, I try so I'm gonna do everything that everybody was always saying like you feel bad reach out you know like ask for help and so I did and um they listened to me and they said you know what we think you could really benefit from this and so I I, I went and I um kind of told them what's been going on and they were like, you know what? We think that you have borderline personality disorder. And, you know, here's like what that means. And, you know, like here's what you can do about it. And here are, you know, types of treatments that we think can really help you. And, um, you know, here I was, I came in and I thought, you know, maybe I had bipolar. And, uh, you know, they're like, you know, you know, what you're experiencing, it sounds like, you know, it's based in trauma and, um, you know, if we tackle it, you know, if we try to look at this, you know, from a bipolar perspective, like we're going to be looking at lithium, we're going to be, you know, um, looking at a different approach to this. But if we, if we try to tackle this as borderline, um, 
we'll try, you know, dialectical uh, behavioral therapy and we'll see kind of, kind of what happens and, and if that resonates with you. And for the first time in my life, like, you know, the, I think the first things that they taught me was, was like grounding and uh, grounding techniques and how to be aware of your surroundings. And, and, you know, I realized that like, gosh, I was really cut off from myself, my experiences and my surroundings. And I would just get lost in my mind and I would float away and I would drift away. And, you know, I just wasn't there. And so I needed to come back. I needed to find my way back to where I was. And it just made sense to me. It just all of a sudden, you know, like, this is why I love painting. This is why I love working with clay because I can feel it. It's very tactile. And I've found since then that I'm very tactile and I find myself constantly like, like rubbing things. <laughs> like, like, like even like right now, like I'm laying on my bed and I'm like, you know, twiddling the sheets in between my fingers. And, and, um, it, it's, uh, something just that I've always kind of, uh, done and never really noticed. And, and now, you know, once I learned the benefits of this and, uh, you know, like, you know, when they say like name, you know, like five things that like you can touch or see or smell. And I would just start to analyze like my room and, you know, everything and just the power of, of kind of throwing myself back into the now and into the present, um, gave me this confidence, um, that like maybe I don't need like all this medication. Maybe I'm not as fucked up as I think I am. And, you know, maybe there's a way out of this and it's not as ugly and scary as it needs to be. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then you do research on borderline oh, uh, and, you and, and it. then <laughs> you get scared again. Yeah, and then yeah. I Googled it and yeah. then I was like, fuck, man, like I'm a bad person. And mm-hmm. like, you know, because you, you Google it and they're like, oh, attention seeking, manipulative, um, and for a long time, I really struggled with, you know, because, you know, my therapists at the, um, at the psych ward, they were very non-judgmental. They were very, they, they, you know, painted borderline in a very positive light. Um, and they're like, now that you understand this, like, you know, understand that you had a very difficult time as a child and that's okay because you know what, you're safe now and, uh, <laughs> getting all teary-eyed, like you can like move on from that. And that was really empowering. So mm-hmm. I have this, this idea that they painted this beautiful, glorious, like, you know, path to recovery, this road that I could, you know, pioneer. And I felt that I could do that. <laughs> and then Google's like, you're just a bad person. And then it like kind of harkens back to all the shit that I've ever fed myself, all the shit I ever, you know, like told myself to believe Right. And it so it was this weird balancing act because I've always had distorted thoughts. I know I acknowledge that my percep my perception is screwed. Um and, you know, having to, you know, realize what is the difference between asking somebody for help when you need it and what is attention seeking. And I focused on that a lot because uh I then became scared to attention seek. Like maybe I only went to the hospital and asked for help because I'm borderline, you know, and I, you know, to the research, they say, you know, like, like, uh, you know, 12% of the people who like access, uh, you know, like crisis services or people who have borderline, like that's supposed to be some like negative thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, 
you know, like that's a good thing. Um, I think that it shows, you know, somebody is understanding that they're in an insane amount of pain um, and that they're scared. And, you know, you know, the only time that you hear like, okay, social media, you know, every time, you know, like a celebrity uh, dies by suicide or, um, you know, experiences or acknowledges mental health and the need for more resources and empathy and stuff like that, everybody cheers and says, yeah, you like, like, hey, like, you know, if you're having problems, you know, like, reach out to me, I'll be there for you. And, and like, here's, you know, all these numbers and, you know, but you know, you know, there's like a little time frame, you know, like something happens, it sparks that response and all these people. And then a couple days later, everybody forgets about it. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, you know, so, so I've always kind of dealt with that whole, um, I don't know, the multitudes of asking for help and what that should look like, what it could look like. Um, and, afraid of how people are going to respond to that because right now I feel that people view those terms in a very negative light, um, you know, asking for help, you know, you know, you know, back to when I was, you know, like a kid, you know, it's like a sign of weakness, you know, crying was like weakness, like stop that. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, like asking for help was, or, you know, like attention seeking. You think about, I think about, you know, like high school and kids who cut themselves because they were in pain and, oh, they're just doing that because they want attention. And I think, you know, people die in silence um, because they're afraid to ask for help. Um, And so what if they're looking for attention? It looks to me like they need attention. Mm -hmm. They need somebody to come over there and say like, hey, like, what is up? And maybe it's not the most, um, obviously, it's not the, the healthiest way to do it. But I don't think that naturally people do that to get a response out of a person. I think they naturally do that because there's so much going on inside them. They don't have, they don't have a release or they don't know how to release that um, and are scared of the response of, asking for help. And I think that's kind of ironic and, um, very sad. And, um, last any, not this last summer, but the summer before that I was coming off the end of like the tailspin of a pretty manic episode. I was kind of freaking out for like two weeks. So like the Lexapro helped a lot. Um, but I do still have, you know, difficult situations and and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you know, so two summers ago, I'm really freaking out. And I'm like, okay, Sarah, let's let's whip out that tool belt, you know, and let's go through some of, you know, the things that we've learned and what are some things that, you know, help you. And so, you know, I just made this really long, just crazy list of, um, you know, things that I could do and, you know, things that had to do with art always popped up. And I've always wanted to curate an art show. I've always wanted to show in a gallery, but I've always been scared to approach. I've never really felt my artwork was, uh, I don't know, um, either appropriate because it's kind of, I don't know, people call it dark. I don't really think it's dark, but people call it kind of dark. And, um, you know, so I'm, I've always had this hesitance about showing my artwork, but I really enjoy showing other people's artwork and giving them a voice. And, and I thought, 
you know, with this borderline diagnosis, with all these thoughts I've been thinking about, you know, what has helped me? What is attention seeking me? And, and, um, how can I roll that into something positive and, uh, connect with my community? Because the community is in pain right now. Um, uh, so many people are suffering. Uh, crisis centers are just inundated. Um, you know, mental health system is inundated. And a lot of the people in these systems are so tired. They've got, like, compassion fatigue and, and um, you know, just so many people don't know what to do. Um, and so I, I just felt like we needed to say something and we needed to say something loud. And so I decided I was going to have an art show. And I... Googled around to all the local galleries, and I saw something that they were, um, there was a call to art, and they were having guest curator spots. And I was like, this could be interesting. I've got all this manic energy right now. Like, <laughs> I could totally kick out, like, a proposal that's really detailed and in-depth and, um, and, you know, take this, this, this energy that I have right now and put it into something positive and something that um, I could you know, built from. And so that's what I did. I wrote this really long proposal. Um, you know, I had some artists in mind. I would uh, reach out to artists who had experienced mental illness or mental health or suicide or anything in that vein um, and reach out to them and, uh, you know, ask them to be a part of this. And they could, you know, talk about how they viewed mental health, how they kind of viewed, you know, their world, through that lens and how it's kind of affected their art and, you know, if art had, you know, kind of helped them um, find out things about themselves or helped them cope or like whatever. Cause I mean, mental health is so vast and um, everyone's experiences are uniquely their own. And, and, you know, and so it'd be really interesting to see that, you know, in a gallery, I felt. Um, and so I proposed it, I typed it up, I, wrote out a really detailed timeline and I uh, was like, sent it off. And, uh, the day that, uh, they're like, you know, the deadline is this day, the very next day after the deadline, I got a, a reply. Like we would love to have the show. And I was like, Oh my God, are you serious? Like, Oh my God. Okay. Yes, I'll do it. <laughs> Fuck yes, I'll do it. And so, um, I've kind of been doing that ever since. And so, um, uh, the show is called Help Me, An Intimate Portrayal of Mental Illness, and it's actually, um, uh, it's going to be, we're going to have our reception May 3rd of this year, um, and uh, we chose uh, May for Mental Health Awareness uh, Month, and it's going to span from May 3rd to June 23rd, and so, and it's this gorgeous gallery space. It's it's at the historic Bush Barn, which is in Salem, Oregon. And it's uh, it's it's actually um, uh, the Bush Barn is several galleries in you know one spot, and it's on this land of um, there's a beautiful park there, the Bush Pasture, and there's like rose gardens, and and then within the barn itself, there's several galleries, and then our, the gallery that we're in, the AN Gallery, is the um, the largest exhibit space, uh, and and so, yeah, so I'm just super freaking stoked about this, um, and, and we're coming up to it now. Um, we just hit 60 days, so we're 60 days um, out. That's um, exciting. <laughs> I know. Like, uh, like I can't. I can't wait. Um, you know, we just had, uh, for, so for February, once we hit 90 days, 
my mission. Um, so like, you know, beginning of February, my mission was to, all right, you know, like I've had you guys kind of like on the back burner the last year and a half. We're getting closer. It's time to kind of like finalize. We've been kind of, you know, thinking about things we want to do. Now tell me what you want to do and, you know, figure this out and kind of tell me your stories and, and everything like that. And, you know, I've heard so many, so many things. Um, so now we have nine artists, um, and they're all incredible. Um, and I've got, they're on, uh, the website that I built for it. Um, uh, and, you know, they give like a little bit of information about kind of, you know, how this pertains to them and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And so I've had that for a while, but actually like sitting down with the artist in February and, and, you know, you know, first I'd, you know, so they didn't feel so vulnerable and like, I'd kind of, you know, give them my little spiel about kind of, you know, my history about it. And was you know, what about you? And, and so having that really direct open conversation, um, I felt was really empowering. Um, and you know, what I've seen this last year since I've been kind of starting to promote it, you know, I had the website out a couple months ago and, you know, my friends and family, it's kind of been like my coming out, I guess, um, <laughs> to a lot of my family. And the responses that I've had from people I know, complete strangers, people come up to me and they say, like, Sarah, like, I know we haven't talked much or like whatever, but like, I know you're really, you know, like heavy into this. Like, can I talk to you about this? And, you know, I've had, you know, uh, someone come to me, their eight year old was, you know, like suicidal. And they're like, how do I deal with this? Because I'm about to take them to the hospital and like, you know, so, you know, what I've been seeing a lot is people reaching out who have no idea what to do. And it's like, I'm not a therapist, um, but I've been through the motions of searching for help. And, and so I kind of know a little bit about, you know, like, you know, digging around and kind of sorting through and, you know, like how to, how to find like resources. And so I've just been kind of helping people and with stuff like that. And, and it's just showed me, um, how badly people want, want to talk about this, maybe not want to, but need to, because so many people are so affected by it. Um, And, you know, when people ask for help, it doesn't always sound like, help me, you know, it could sound like so many things and, um, you know, identifying, you know, what, what hidden language is in somebody's words or how to decipher, you know, like their tears or, um, and, 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 you know, I think the most powerful thing is saying, like, you don't have to decipher. You don't have to have all the answers. Sometimes the best thing you can do is listen and just validate their experience. And in a lot of ways, for that moment, that can be enough. That can be enough to, okay, take a breath, next step, <laughs> like, um, you know, uh just validating those experiences, I think, is super powerful. Um, and mm-hmm. so I think when people saw that the show was happening and that people were sharing their very intimate details of some very difficult things, um, you know, more people were like, yeah, like this is, 
this is something that like I need. This is something that my friend needs. And so what we decided to do was for the gallery, for the art show is we're going to have um, uh, lots of resources available. We're going to have um, uh, a discussion panel uh, in on May 18th. And uh, we're going to invite, um, you know, lots of people who, um, like therapists and stuff and lots of peer advocates and, and just people who want to learn more. People may have like friends who are experiencing something. Maybe they're experiencing something themselves and they just don't know where to begin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just going to be a really raw conversation um, about the people in the panel and their personal experiences. And then they can ask whatever questions they want. And I told the people in the panel, you know, like, hey, like, I'm promoting like uncomfortable conversations and so like be prepared for that like you know before you sign up make sure you're okay because I want these people to feel that they can ask you anything um and you know that's something that's always been really taboo it's something that's been difficult for people to do but I think once you push beyond that that's when you start making I think of an important connection um and having the important conversations that need to be had. Um, so yeah, there's my little spiel. <laughs> so that that's that's kind of what's going on and kind of like how it's I don't know evolved, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I checked out your website and it's really um, I I wish I lived closer so that I could go, um, but it looks oh, really amazing. Um, it, thank you. Didn't you also? Um, speak to the Senate Healthcare Committee? Yes. Okay. Do- so, yeah. So, um, so I didn't actually get to do that. Uh, we had a snow day. Oregon, uh, or in the Valley, we don't really get snow much. And so whenever we get like a tiny bit, everyone, ah, like <laughs> shut it down, shut it down. And so, uh, we've actually rescheduled. Um, so a couple months ago I joined, uh, NAMI Oregon and, um, uh, I've been telling them like, Hey, like I want to help, like put me places like I can, you know, like put me places you think I can help, like I'll do whatever. And, um, they recently brought me on to, uh, the advocacy committee mm-hmm. and we had the opportunity to, um, go have our, our lobby day at the, the Oregon state Capitol. Um, and we were, you know, we had individual meetings, um, uh, that were assigned uh, and we could go and speak with our representatives. Um, and, you know, afterwards we had a hearing that was scheduled and they asked me to uh, testify before our uh, Senate health care committee. And I was like, yes, <laughs> of course I will do that. Um, so I was super bummed when the snow came, but we are uh, rescheduling for like a, like a virtual uh, kind of day. Okay. Um, we're, yeah, so we can still kind of connect with them and, and whatnot, because um, it, it is so important still um, uh, to reach out with them. And, you know, there's a lot of things going on in Oregon right now. Um, you know, uh, I was looking at uh, uh, mental health, uh, mental health care America, uh, and they, they had recently put out this report and showed that, you know, as far as resources and access to mental health care, Oregon is dead last. Oh, wow. Um, and, yeah, and it was really shocking. And, um, you know, there have been these reports coming out, you know, lately from, you know, um, your, uh, uh, there's a bunch of reports coming out lately about um, our state, um, our state hospital 
which is so inundated. Um, there are a lot of people who are being picked up with mental health issues for petty crimes, mm-hmm. and they're sitting, they're sitting uh, basically in jail waiting to be processed, um, you know, um, way longer than they should, and it's been deemed, you know, unconstitutional, and and so it's one of those things like there's just not enough beds, so we know that, you know, the need is there, um, and we just have so many people suffering and not enough people to care for them, um, and so, yeah, just, it just became really important to me that, you know, I feel like now more than ever realizing that I have a voice and, you know, even though I have borderline, that doesn't mean my voice is any less important. It doesn't mean that, um, I can't use it, um, for good. So if I'm going to be seeking attention, um, (laughs) it's going to be the right kind of attention. And I want to, I want to spotlight that attention where it needs to be, um, most and and I think that there's just a lot of people suffering. There's um, you know, a lot of kids in school are suffering. We have a lot of schools in Oregon who don't have counselors. Um, and uh, uh, you know, you get lots of sad, angry kids, and they act out, and they're in really bad situations, and um, that turns into, you know a very difficult, um, you know, teenage years develops into, you know, develops into drug use and violence and crime and, and just so many terrible things can come from this, but we can, we can, we can circumvent that quite easily. And all we need to do is, is validate. We need to be there. We need to have the capacity to be there. If we don't have the people in the places to see the people that need them, um, uh, then nothing's going to change. It's just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. And that's what I don't want to see. So I figure, you know, like we can do something. We know of a model that can work. So why aren't we doing that? Like, so we just need to keep the pressure on the, the lawmakers to, um, to do what they need to do. Right. Yeah. (laughs) so, so I'm just going to try to keep keep moving forward in that direction. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm. I hope that uh, you can get uh, get your day this time. <laughs> if it's, uh, if it's virtual, then hopefully it won't snow. Right? It shouldn't make any right. Difference. Exactly. <laughs> Mother Nature can't say no to that. Right. Right. Yeah, well, what is the website for your for the show so that I can put that on the show notes there? Sure. Um, so it's uh, uh, gallery slash help hyphen me. Um, and I can send you, I can write it out for you too and send it to you. <laughs> um, actually, I, I have it bookmarked already. <laughs> oh, perfect. Yay. Yeah. So no worries there. Um, Great. And do you have any social media or anything that you want to promote? Or? Um, I've got a Facebook for uh, Midnight's Gallery, and I've got an Instagram for Midnight's Gallery. I'm, you know, I need, I want to do, I need to do more on Instagram. Like I've got an Instagram account, and like I'll hop on every so often, and I'll post the thing. And then I forget it exists. <laughs> but everyone's <laughs> telling me, like, Instagram's where you got to go if you're doing, like, art stuff. I'm trying to 
trying to, to, to do more art. And eventually I want to have, um, you know, I want to extend off of the Help Me show and have like a permanent online exhibition um, oh, that'd be great. Uh, for artists and stuff like that. So so I'm just hoping it's just going to grow and grow and grow. So. Yeah, well, wonderful. And, yeah, and they're all just like Midnight Stock Gallery on Facebook and Instagram. Okay. All right. Okay, well, thanks for talking with me today. I, I think we're just about out of time, or at least I am. Yeah. But, but yeah, I really, really enjoyed talking with you today. I appreciate it. And um, hopefully some of that stuff will end up on Instagram so I can see it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for, for, you know, putting this podcast together. And, and it's just, I think it's really important. So I think it's fantastic. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, no, no problem. Thank you. And thanks again to Sarah for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And I hope everybody goes and checks out all of her um, Instagram and Facebook and can see all the artwork that is going to be uh, promoted there. So, And as always, you can reach me at Becky at thatbword.com or on Twitter at thatbword1. And you can find me on Facebook at thatbwordpod and on Pinterest at thatbwordpodcast. And you can find all of my previous episodes at thatbword.com. And please, again, it's really important for you guys to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, it really does help and helps other people find the podcast. And again, I do have my voicemail line that you can leave me a message at. It's 330-353-9633. And you can leave a message there anytime and I'd love to hear your voices. All right. Thanks so much, guys. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.